From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. GPB Loves Music is our month-long celebration of artists from or visiting Georgia. Today, we're looking at the rich foundation of music and artists who continue to influence popular music today. Keeps Georgia on my mind. We cannot possibly cover Georgia music from folk songs to hip-hop, so we're digging at the roots today with three scholars and aficionados of music forged in the elm-shaded red clay roads of rural Georgia and the cultural swirl of its cities. Jamie Weatherford is co-founder of Rock Candy Tours in Macon, which gives musical history tours of the city. Jamie, welcome. Thank you. And Dr. Joycelyn Wilson is with us. She's Assistant Professor of Hip-Hop Media Studies at Georgia Tech. Joycelyn, great to have you back with us. Thank you. (laughs) And Lance Ledbetter, founder and co-director of Dust to Digital. That's a Grammy award-winning record company documenting historic recordings. Lance, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. All right, so this is a beast to rein in, but a beautiful beast. And we're going to start with some of the earliest recordings made in Georgia. Here's Lucille Hegeman with Everybody's Blues from 1920. Joycelyn, Lucille is thought to be the second African-American woman to record blues. This is after Mamie Smith. But the blues came out of a long tradition of African-American experience. How do you teach its origins to your students? We began to look at blues as an ideology that spans across different genres of music. So this allows us to look at its relationship to slave songs, work songs, Um, The manipulation of different instruments and sounds, the development of calls and responses. And by the time we established those, um, what's called Maltzby, Maltzby, Portia Maltzby calls them Africanisms. And those are the performative um, antecedents, so to speak, that find themselves coming out of the music to create blues, which is more of an experience expressed through music. Right, than a genre. Than, than a genre. So that allows us to look at eras of blues all the way up to now. We can still see that tradition playing out. So when I teach it, students begin to locate how that blues sound and that blues experience expands from B.B. Um, King to Kendrick Lamar and even further from before that. So that's the way in which we enter into that space to talk about the music. Well, Blind Willie McTell, another blues musician from Georgia, who made, he made a significant impact on artists down the line. This is his Statesboro Blues. Sister, tell your brother, brother, tell your auntie, now auntie, tell your uncle, uncle, tell my cousin, now cousin, tell my friend, run up the country, mama, don't you want to go? May take me a fair brown, may 
So a very different feeling there. The Statesboro Blues, later covered by the Allman Brothers some 50 years later. Of course, he inspired a Bob Dylan song. But his career, of course, not nearly as commercially successful as those later acts. So Lance, we've talked on this program before about Ralph Peer's makeshift recording studio in Atlanta, putting out the first country song and race records that were making money at the time. What was the market for blues? And and what did that mean for American music that followed? Well, McTell was, you know, like you, you pointed out, um, a different sound than like a Lucille Hegemon. He, it was the guitar playing blues, which um, McTell even had a more unique uh, style than, than most uh, guitar playing blues players because he played a 12 string and it had just a richer sound. Um, it was it was something that, that people like Ralph Peer were recording to try to, to sell back to black audiences. And all this is happening in the Jim Crow South. So how does that change our understanding of these artists and the music they're making? You know, you, you can't talk about, you know, the music in the South, of course, with, without discussing racism and the Jim Crow laws and that kind of stuff. So um, that, to me, is why these great blues people were innovators um, and why uh, yeah, a lot of people out of uh, Georgia still are is because they're pushing that envelope a little bit. Um, if you don't push it, if you don't try, um, you're not going to create anything new. And, um, you know, I'm not sure how it happened, but we just had so many come out of this state who just were not afraid to try something new. It's really incredible. What do you think that is about? Is there, is there something about the character of Georgia or just the time that, you know, take the risk? I mean, I was really, when, I, when you just said that, I was just thinking to myself, like, that is so true. I mean, Georgia is known for being so culturally innovative, you know, and creating not only the sound, but, you know, how to even talk about the sound. And, I mean, from, you know, the genius of Ray Charles, let's say, you know, and I'm not trying to jump ahead. I'm just trying to point out there was a certain genius around how soul music and blues music develops in Georgia that we're still seeing right now with trap music. You know, mm-hmm. there's a, there's an innovation that pushes not only pop culture, but it pushes the artists having control over their music. So Ray Charles coming out of Georgia, we see that not only does he create and blend together blues and gospel and Negro spirituals and, and, country. and all and country and all of that together to do his blues, you know, he demands certain artistic rights and control that push the industry. We're still seeing that come out of Georgia. Georgia is known for those for those shifts. So I, I second I second that point. All right, we're going to have to pause on that right now. We're going to listen to Ma Rainey singing Prove It On Me Blues as we take a quick break. Jamie Weatherford, Joyce Lynn Wilson, and Lance Ledbetter, stick with us. And you rely on GPB to deepen your understanding of our region, our culture, our country, and our world. And then conversations like we're bringing you now, connecting you with the people and the culture of Georgia and the Southeast. That's how public radio works, and that's what our fall fund drive is all about. We are inviting you to come on in and join the GPB. Family. Go ahead and do it now while you're listening. Here's how. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Georgia Music Hall of Fame may have closed in 2011, but the vast collection is now mostly archived at the UGA Library. Well, we are bringing you some of that dynamic and influential history alive today with Joycelyn Wilson, Assistant Professor of Hip Hop at Georgia Tech, Lance Ledbetter, founder of Dusta Digital Records, and with us from Macon, Jamie Weatherford. He's co-founder of Rock Candy Tours. All right, so let's get back to what you were just saying, Joycelyn, about the 
idea of the fusion of different kind of music. And of course, once you're done sinning in the clubs on Saturday night, you're in church in the pews on Sunday morning. There's a huge gospel music tradition here. Thomas A. Dorsey, acknowledged as a father of black gospel. But Lance, for this show, you picked out Reverend J.M. Gates, mm-hmm. who was recording some early gospel, along with some very influential sermons. Let's hear just a little bit of Death's Black Train is Coming. Come on. Oh, the little black train is coming. Get on your business right. You better set your house in order. Lance, tell us a little bit about Reverend J.M. Gates and the music that he made. Well, J.M. Gates was a, a Baptist preacher here in Atlanta. He lived in the uh, Summer Hill neighborhood here in the city. And um, when the uh, recording scouts were coming down from New York to record uh, country and blues, they, they, they looked into gospel, and J.M. Gates had a huge following. His church was uh, very well attended. And going back to Joycelyn's point about the, the innovation, uh, J.M. Gates, um, this is before televised sermons and and really before radio uh, gospel sermons had picked up. And so Gates would take several members of his congregation into the recording studio and they'd gather around a microphone and try to recreate church. And the record sold like crazy. I mean, if you're if you're looking at an antique shop or a flea market in Georgia, you will see some J.M. Gates records. <laughs> well, then another thing that you may see or may have seen at the time were country music records. Then we also have Gid Tanner and his Skillet Liquors, which helped make Atlanta and North Georgia really a center of string music. Here is Down Yonder. So we heard earlier about the marketing blues and and gospel eventually as race music for a particular audience. There's also a big marketing push in the country music, calling it hillbilly or old time music. And and artists, they just played along as hicks? Well, I I think, uh, you know, I I watched some of the Ken Burns uh, documentary last night. Um, Jimmy Rogers had no problem performing in overalls and and sort of putting on the airs. You know, it was no no problem for him. Um, Yeah, the, the Skillet Liquors was a group that sort of came together from the fiddling conventions that they would have here in Atlanta. And um, we talked about Ralph Peer with OK Records. Well, Columbia had sort of picked up on these fiddlers' conventions, and they would time their um, scouts coming down to record at the time of those conventions. And so the Skillet Liquors was kind of like the... um, I don't know, like the traveling Wilburys of their time because they had the, you know, the best players from LJ and Dalton and Resaca and just all over the state because they were all coming to uh, to Atlanta to play for these uh, conventions to win contests. Well, that Ken Burns documentary that started on Sunday emphasizes, you know, it's no accident that country music came from the South and, and emphasizes significant contributions of African-Americans to country music and really all mm-hmm. American music. Um, Jamie, do you have a sense of how that was playing out here in Georgia? Well, in Macon in particular, our big country guy was a gentleman named Emmett Miller. His song Love Sick Blues is what inspired Hank Williams to perform that song. And uh, Emmett was a minstrel singer that sang in blackface. Um, So, you know, clearly that's a difficult uh, topic to discuss and so uh, we're, we're proud of what Emmett's contribution was. Um, 
but I don't think he was that great of a guy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in terms of how that would branch out, of course, I think for a lot of young people today, uh, Hank Williams is, you know, kind of like their first old school country artist that they get into before they start digging into some of these other people. So uh, the Georgia, you know, obviously had a very big impact in country. Um, and, uh, of course, it continued and still does today all the way up to what we still call country music with somebody like Jason Aldean, who is from Macon, Georgia, who plays something completely different than what we were just talking about. Joycelyn, this is something that you've written about specifically, the the country, the, the black roots of country music, specifically in the context of Lil Nas X and his big hit. Yeah, when you bring up, Jamie brings up Jason Aldean, and, and earlier you said, you know, what's happening in Georgia? You know, I, I think it's in the clay. You know, it's it's a it's in the red clay. I would say that because Jason Aldean is one of those artists that grew up on country, and he also grew up on hip hop. He was also impacted by hip hop going mainstream. Back in the day, Pot's Farm was a place to go. Load the truck up, hit the dirt road, jump the barbed wire, spread the word, light the bonfire, and call the girls. King and the can and the Marlboro. So with Jason Aldean, you'll get um, you'll get some rapping going on. You'll get a collaboration with Ludacris, ultimately leading to other collaborations in in country with um, Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus. So it's part of a tradition that we get in Georgia that you know. Ray Charles wasn't the first to do it, but he was the one that made it made it mainstream. And that's innovation out of Georgia, right? Okay, <laughs> here we here we are. More innovation, more opportunism. I think we're hearing a lot of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we are two segments in, and we're up to like 1923, 24. <laughs> Let's press it forward to soul music. And Ray Charles, we'll, we'll begin mm-hmm. with that in just a second. But we're taking a quick break here to remind you that it is your support that makes On Second Thought and everything that you hear on GPB possible. Right now, during our Fall Fun Drive, it's your opportunity to do your part. The amount, that is up to you. What counts most is that we hear from you. Here's how you can help out. We will be back with more Georgia Music Hall of Fame. Let's say the whiz-bang audio tour when On Second Thought continues. We are back with more of On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. We've been celebrating music all month long, and today we are inspired to assemble a couple of folks for, let's say, an audio tour of the roots of Georgia music. There's so many acts that have come out of Georgia and are still making great music today. Jamie Weatherford is with us, co-founder of Rock Candy Tours in Macon. Joyce Lynn Wilson, professor of hip-hop media studies at Georgia Tech, and Lance Ledbetter, co-director of Dust to Digital. We were talking about early blues, gospel, and, and I think country to some extent, the building blocks for what became rhythm and blues, rock and roll, and soul music all rolled together in the spectacular Ray Charles born in Albany, Georgia. He sang a number of songs for Atlantic Records that did well on the R&B charts, but never really hit the Billboard pop charts until 1959 with this song. Well, tell me what I say. Joycelyn, just how significant was this as a crossover hit? Oh, it was what we needed. <laughs> you know, it was soul and R&B and gospel and the spiritual and the secular, which he got in trouble for. Yeah, you know, a lot he, of radio stations wouldn't play. Right. He he was he caught a lot of flack for that. But 
this is what we get. You know, we get this opportunity to really look at black music in the South as a gumbo of soul and spirit and secular and dancing and black joy and black celebration. And it goes mainstream. So that was very significant. It ha- it's been the same way since then. After that, we get James Brown and, and we just kind of move on all the way to where we are now. We have Georgia has been making folks dance and shake and, you know, have a good time for a very long time. And it's Ray Charles who, who helped make that happen. <laughs> he won him over eventually. But this is interesting because at first he was modeling himself almost like a Nat King Cole kind yeah. of figure, you know, very acceptable to um, to the white market, the mainstream market. What does that tell us about the segmented nature of, of the music business? Lance, mm-hmm. do you have a thought about that? Well, as an artist, you get more comfortable going outside of your comfort zone. You know, you all have, you know, each artist has their influences and their inspirations and, and they they hear things from the record business and the record business can sway them, you know, play it safe. But I think as you get more comfortable as an artist, you feel like innovating, being yourself and uh, freeing up any inhibitions you might have in the studio. Well, let's hear from somebody who was absolutely himself, Mr. Little Richard. So while the White Citizens Council of Northern Alabama was afraid that rock and roll was going to bring the races together, you have somebody like Little Richard with his mascara and capes and sequins and his leg up on the piano. Where did he come from, Jamie? And you know, this man who describes himself as the inventor of rock and roll. Well, that, And that is why I believe he is, it's simply because while his music is unique, there are others like Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis who had similar music and they're very important in the foundation of rock and roll but what little richard brought was a total energy and sexuality that i think in many ways had never existed before mm-hmm. so chronologically he was a little bit ahead of ray charles mm-hmm. but i think what was so unique about ray charles is how he brought in more of a gospel flavor mm-hmm. whereas little richard was just straight up in your face that sexual sort of driven rock and roll And it was uh, Little Richard's uh, manager and Little Richard that actually got a band called the Gospel Starlighters to Macon, Georgia, also in 1955. And uh, the manager, Clinton Brantley, recognized that James Brown was kind of the one to watch. And James Brown's recording career began in Macon, Georgia. And his first song, Please, 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 they say that uh, the reason James Brown wrote that is one night he was drinking at a local club with Etta James and Little Richard walked by and threw down a napkin. And when James Brown opened up the napkin, the words, please, 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 were written on that napkin. Please, 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 please. So uh, huge influence, and that's part of why he was able to call himself the architect. And, you know, I, I personally feel like Little Richard is being forgotten in some way, so I'm very grateful to y'all for bringing him up. Well, I'm grateful that you give us a reason to play Please, Please, Please by James Brown. <laughs> I love you so much. 
James Brown is quite an enigma. He was politically active. He marched in the civil rights movement. He also later befriended Strom Thurmond, the strong, uh, the arch South Carolina segregationist, let's say. He was also very open and proud of his, you know, say aloud, I'm black and I'm proud. This is when the black power movement was emerging. Jamie, how do you place a man who defied simple classification in, in Georgia's history and, and American music history? Well, James Brown is, a, I think, one of the greatest innovators of all time. Um, he changed style mm-hmm. consistently. You know, people make mistakes. I hope that some of the the issues that occurred towards the end of his career don't overshadow the tremendous impact that he had. And, and he was such a powerful, uh, you know, black power, black pride member later in his life. And he, you know, he just did so many great things. So I pray that, that that's the legacy that people in Georgia and, and around the world remember. I think that he would also, I think by the end of his career and when he entered into black power, black pride, I, I believe that was a manifestation of something that was already there over those years. We see him grow up through the music, and we get a range of what his journey is. But I think James Brown, even in his highs and lows, still embraced who he was as a black man from Georgia. And by the time we get to say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. I believe what really the black community understood was those songs were rooted beyond partisanship, because I believe it was him working through his own journey to getting to being a self-sustaining black man. Yeah, I remember reading his biography, and in, in the, there's a very vivid image in the book where he's, um, as a child in Augusta, Georgia, dancing, and they're throwing coins, and the, and the better he dances as a kid, the more coins he gets thrown, and his, and his family was kind of relying on the money he was making, uh, you know, and he started switching from shoe shining to just doing the dancing, and um you know, when I see him dancing later on in the in the 50s and 60s, you still can see that young child is just trying to go that extra mile to entertain everyone. Mm-hmm. And dancing for his life on some level. Well, we're going to take a quick break to check in with our fall fun drive and be back with more of some of the major players in the roots of Georgia music. With my guests Lance Ledbetter, Joycelyn Wilson, and Jamie Weatherford. Please stay with us. I love you so Thank you so much for listening to On Second Thought during our fall fun drive. We're taking just a couple minutes to remind you that it is your support that keeps this and everything that you hear on GPB that make a difference in your life here for you and for the community. It is our fall fun drive, the time of year when we ask you to do your part, and here's how you can help. We are back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Before Goody Mob and T.I. burst out of Georgia came Blind Willie McTell and James Brown. Before Trisha Yearwood, Alan Jackson, and Jason Aldean were Brenda Lee and Chet Atkins changing the sound of country music. Well, we're looking at the dense and diverse musical foundations of some of the giants of American music today with Joycelyn Wilson, assistant professor of hip-hop at Georgia Tech, with Lance Ledbetter, founder of Dust to Digital Records, and Jamie Weatherford. He's co-founder of Rock Candy Tours in Macon. We spoke to Earth Gang just at the beginning of this month of music that we're celebrating. Do you think... Joycelyn, I'm going to put this to you, that they would connect their roots to James Brown or Ma Rainey. I believe they will. They would have to, even if they didn't want to. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because James Brown provided a template that has just been used 
over and over and remixed through genres. Mm -hmm. On whosample.com, there are over 1,500 registered samples for James Brown, Funky Drummer. Wow. And that's, that's across all music genres. So even if they didn't want to, they would have to. Well, sampling becomes a huge part of the late 20th century music and early 21st century music business that we are living in and that followed. And the story of music in America is, of course, the story of the record business as well. And one of the star players, Capricorn Records in Macon, started largely because of this guy, Otis Redding. How did Otis Redding shake things up? I, I could, could ask any of you. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you in Macon, Georgia, he was incredibly important, and of course beyond. But uh, it was here in Macon that um, uh, Phil Walden, where he attended Mercy University, uh, first started running into Otis. By 1965, Phil Walden, uh, his brother Alan Walden, and Otis Redding formed uh, Central Georgia's first integrated owned business, and it was called Redwall, stood for Redding and Walden. And then uh, Otis's career began to really take off. He went into the recording studio on December 8th of 1967 to record a song he thought would change his career. And then on December 10th, the plane carrying Otis Redding and the majority of his backing band, the Barquets, crashed into a lake in Wisconsin. And that song that he recorded on December 8th, of course, it was sitting on the dock of the bay. Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide Um, and the Waldens just felt like they could not replace Otis Redding. Thankfully, they got a phone call from uh, Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records. Um, Phil and a partner of his drove over to Muscle Shoals, met Dwayne Allman, and said, please build us a band. Um, the Allman Brothers Band were born on March 26. Of 1969, and the Capricorn mm. Records and Southern Rock was born. It was one mm. of the most successful rock bands to come out of Georgia. Uh, and as you said, uh, the emergence of Southern Rock influenced, certainly by the music of rural Georgia and those blues and soul and R&B musicians that came before them. I want to go back to something Jamie was saying, what yeah, you were saying up. about Otis Redding. Otis Redding has was Trilo Tenderness was sampled by Kanye West for he his song with Jay Z called Otis, right, from the Watch the Throne album. Mm -hmm. So Georgia as a as a incubator of innovation, I just think that it's it's nothing scientific. It just happened here. This is God loves Georgia. And, <laughs> you know, it it was great timing. And I think that's it's not rocket science, you know. It's just God loves Georgia, and this is where he placed his finger and said, I want all of the innovation that's going to bring these people together. I want it to come out of the state. Boy, you're really messing with all the people who are trying to come up with algorithms for what makes a hit. No, yeah, Joyce and I agree with you. God loves Georgia, but also Georgians love God. And Georgians <laughs> love God. Yeah. Amen. And if you look, you know, at the majority, at least in Macon, Georgia, you know, the, we like to say that our music came from the steeples. Um, uh, you know, so for us, of course, Little Richard, James Brown and Otis Redding all have very significant um, uh, childhood contributions in the church. Their fathers were deacons and that kind of stuff. Of course, James Brown did not have that, but he was always searching for redemption mm -hmm. is what we say. So, um you know, uh, Little Richard's father was a deacon by day and a bootlegger by night. Otis Redding's father was involved in the church very heavily. So, you know, it all came out of that in the R&B world. 
Well, if you if you look at you know you used the word enigma earlier, I think uh, you know the enigmas passing the torch. Um, the first show that that uh, Little Richard ever performed was a gospel show with uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, who herself was an enigma, a uh, um, the guitar Af- playing African American guitar playing female who who you know a lot of people call her the godmother of rock and roll, and and um, it was um, after that performance when uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp gave. Uh, Little Richard some pay for playing with her. Um, he said, I can make money on this and sort of set him on his path. And then you look at Otis Redding. He says that Little Richard is the reason he got into professional music. He said uh, he used to try to sing like him, even though there wasn't that big of an age difference, um, only nine years. But when you're young, at nine years, you can really look up to someone. And um, Otis really looked up to Little Richard. So you can see these enigmas. Um, you know, coming into our solar system as bright stars, but you can also see sort of these these um, these torches that get passed among them. That's a beautiful little message that we're going to end with right now. Thank you so much, all of you, for your time. Jamie Weatherford, I want to thank you there in Macon for your time. Thank you so much. Jamie Weatherford with Rock Candy Tours in Macon. Joyce Lynn Wilson, so nice to have you back with us. Thank you. All right, she teaches about hip-hop at Georgia Tech. And Lance Ledbetter of Dust to Digital, what a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dust to Digital is a Grammy-winning record company documenting historic recordings. All right, we've got links to more on all of these musicians at our website, gpbnews.org. And, of course, our GPB Loves Music hashtag is where you'll find more on contemporary music and the stuff that we're talking about here today. And all of that, all of that is made possible by listeners just like you. We work really hard every day to bring news stories from around the states, but in the end, it really is you. That's one of the producers of this very show you make it possible so if you like what you're hearing and enjoy on second thought become a gpb sustaining member today here's how